Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I um, didn't have to think very long about what I wanted to talk about when Marshall asked me to, to speak, I guess it was, what, a couple months ago? And um, I just thought I'd go with the thing that's um, kind of burning in my heart a lot, and it's loving God with an undivided heart. <clears throat> in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 30, one of the teachers of the law came and, and heard Jesus debating with, with other people. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So um, in his answer, he, he basically quoted the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy. And it starts off with, hear, O Israel. Um, in Jesus' response to the teacher of the, of the law's inquiry about which commandment was the greatest, he quotes Deuteronomy known, 6, verses 4 and 5, known as the Shema. This greatest of verses is condensed into the single word, meaning hear. To Moses, who gave the law, as well as those who received the law, the command to hear, or Shema, meant to hear, to understand, to receive, to believe, to respond with your heart, and to obey. So we're just going to ask God to give us that kind of hearing. So let's pray together. God, we lift up our eyes to you this morning. We lift up our hearts to you. We thank you, Lord, that you know, uh, we know that you hear us. God, we pray that you would give us those hearing ears, Lord, to hear what your spirit is saying to us. We ask you, Jesus, that you would give us tender hearts, Lord. That, God, we would have a response of faith. That we would combine the things that we hear with faith, Lord. And that we would have a heart, Lord, that would submit to you and be obedient to you, God. And Father, we commit this time to you. And Lord, we know, God, it's, it's, not, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by your spirit that anything is accomplished. So without your help, Lord, we're just speaking words into the air. We need you, Lord. We commit our hearts to you today, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> he said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one in that his, his works are unique. In Deuteronomy 4.34, it says, Has any other God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? There is no God that did the works and does the works that our God does. He's one in his words. When God speaks, 
there's a difference between his speaking and any other divine being. Any, when I say divine being, I mean angel or cherub or anything that's any heavenly being. Um, God's voice is different. His word carries authority. He is one in his words. And he's unique in his nature. There's no God like our God. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. God is without peer. He's one in that there's, there's no one like him in the heavens or on the earth. In um, Isaiah, he says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. And when I act, who can reverse it? God is one of a kind. He's without peer. And then he's one in that he's unified. God is unified in his essence. He's one essence. He's unified in his character. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are never out of line with each other. Jesus was able to say when walked on this earth, he said, he said, I don't do anything on my own. I only do what I see my father doing. The words that I speak are not my own. I only speak what I hear my father saying. He said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. And then he was able to say, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. I and the father are one. Um, He's unified in his purpose and in his action. He's unified in his word and his deed. He's unified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that this is the, the predicate. This is the thing that's first stated when it tells us to love God. I'm going to, um, in the interest of time, um, I'm going to... Not talk about loving God with your soul, with your mind, or your strength. I think all of those can be subsumed in, into loving God with your whole heart. So what is the heart? The heart is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. In the New Testament, it's translated cardia. While in the Old Testament, it's translated from the word leb, in other words, or lieb. While occasionally it can refer to the physical heart, it predominantly references non-physical qualities and attributes. The heart feels emotions. It holds desires and hopes. It's a storehouse for good and bad. Luke tells us in 645, in Luke 645, that the good man brings up good out of the good that's stored in his heart, while the evil man brings up evil from the evil that's stored in his heart. We hide God's word in our heart. We seek God with our heart. Our hearts can be sick from deferred hope. They can be hardened by sin and unbelief. Our hearts can rejoice and they can mourn. Our hearts can be deceitful according to Jeremiah. Our hearts can be focused or set on things above as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. We find the heart being used across the scope of the Bible to describe thought, memory, fear, love, lament, 
joy, regret, anger, understanding, desire, emotion, intentionality, human will, reflection, self-image, storehouse for secrets, source of strength or weakness, fountain of good or evil, wellspring of blessing or cursing. Our heart is used to commune with God or it's a place where we set up idols. So the heart has such a breadth to it and such a, um, just an amazing scope. So why is the heart critical? Why is it crucial and valuable? When I say critical, I mean, why is it crucial? Why is it valuable? The Bible has many admonitions or warnings and instructions that indicate the central role of the heart in a person's life. A person's heart's self-reflections define the person. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is, says Proverbs 23, 7 in, in the King James Version. We carry in our hearts an image of ourselves and a concept of how God, family, and others sees us that affects our decisions, reactions, values, and relationships. Our communications are directly impacted by our hearts, and we'll be judged by the words that flow out of our hearts. Uh, when Jesus was talking to the, um, to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, he said, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings up good from the good stored in his, uh, up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. That's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 to 37. The condition of our heart directly impacts our spiritual vision, how we, how we see things, how we view the world. A hard heart causes spiritual blindness and deafness. Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 10 says, Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So our heart is the, is the instrument, it's the organ by which we either see or by which we're blind. James says heavenly wisdom or worldly wisdom in your heart will cause you to understand the world in two, uh, understand the world in two completely different ways. And they'll bear, they'll bear opposite types of fruit. Life flows from your heart, and it's of a paramount importance that you protect your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, because out of it is the wellspring of life. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. The heart is a wellspring, a conduit for, pure, the, for the purity and life of God's spirit to flow or for the pollution, the death of the world, the flesh, and the devil to flow. We are commanded to guard our hearts. In Proverbs 4, 20 to 27, it tells us how to guard the heart. It tells us what to put in and what to keep out. It says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. And then it says right in the middle, above all else, guard your heart because out of it is the wellspring of life. 
And then it says, put away perversity from your lips. Keep corrupt talk from your mouth. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. So it talks about these gates that are ears, our eyes, our mouth, our feet, our hands, our gates to our heart. And the things that we do with our body have an effect and an impact on the condition of our heart. So what does it mean to love God with an undivided heart? Let's look back on Mark 12, 30. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The command is to love with all your heart. All your heart. All. Not 20%. Not 50. Not 90. Not 98%. All. 100%. All means undivided. That there's no divisions in our heart. That our heart isn't loving God and then running after other things. Our heart isn't trying to honor and fear the Lord, but being afraid of, of things in the world, being afraid of finances, being afraid of politics, being afraid of conspiracies, being afraid of anything. It's having an undivided heart where we fear him, where we trust him, where we honor him, where we exalt him. It means that there's no adulteration, there's no contaminants it's a pure, holy, consuming fire love that God is calling us to. David said, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. And in Psalm 103, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being. Bless his holy name. So, how do we get an undivided heart? And here I'm going to switch up a little bit and just tell you some things that I've found have been a help for me. Um, I start just about every day focusing on four aspects of God that I consciously recognize and respond to daily. I picture a three-legged stool. There it is. Amazing. With a, with a big bowl of incense on top of it. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, one leg of the stool... Is called God's authority. The second leg of the stool is called God's truth. The third leg of the stool is called God's power. And with God's authority, I, I stop every morning, and this is the first thing I do when I'm getting up, taking a shower, getting ready to go. I say, God, I recognize your authority over everything, that Jesus, you are Lord over all things for the church. God, you are the Lord over the heavens and the earth. You have authority over all things. And by recognizing your authority, there's a response that I have in my heart that I'm required to give. And so to God, I give my submission. I give my allegiance. I say, Lord, I give my allegiance completely to you. I don't give my allegiance to anything or anyone else. I give you my fealty, my loyal service the pledge of serving you. I give you my stewardship, that I'm not a, a possessor or an owner of anything, but I'm a steward of all that you've given me. And I recognize that everything that I have is from your hand. Every, every bit of money, every, um, every piece of, every 
car, every, <laughs> everything that I have in my garage, everything in my house, all my time, it all belongs to God. And I recognize God's truth. I recognize the truth of God's word and spirit uh, and the spirit of truth within me. And um, what, truth is that which aligns to reality as perceived by God. It's not my truth. <laughs> it's not the way I see things. The way I see, see things is, is probably skewed. It's probably a little bit selfish. It's probably a little bit covetous. I renounce those things. I renounce all idolatry and I say, God, I give, I, I give my mind to your process of transformation. I give my body to the, to the obedience of faith. I want to obey you. I want to walk out your truth. And then I call out for wisdom. I cry aloud for understanding. I, out loud, God, give it to me. And uh, in the apartment, I don't cry out too loud. Because <laughs> I've got neighbors. But I go out in the woods and I cry out to God with all of my heart. I say, God, put eyes in my head. God, give me wisdom. Give me understanding, O oh Lord. Help me to see the world the way you see it. Help me to understand things the way you see them. Help me to give proper value to things. I want to love you with all of my heart. The third thing I recognize is God's power. That, you know, we are weak. I don't know if any, anybody else has recognized this, but in walking with God for 44 years, I have realized that I am a weak man. And if, if there's an opportunity for sin, the flesh will always rise to the occasion. I realize that my strength is not going to carry the day, that my wisdom is not going to give me the right thoughts that I need, that my willpower is not going to get me across the finish line. But I recognize God's power, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So I embrace humility. I say, God, I can't do this. I, I can't live this life without your help. I am a weak and a sinful man apart from your strength. I embrace meekness. I say, God, I don't want anything great for myself. But God, I want to see great things for Jesus Christ. I want to see him receive great honor. I want to see him get the, the things that he deserves for the price that he paid and for the, uh, for the glorious God in flesh that he is. I declare my dependence upon his power. I denounce fleshly reliance on the one hand and fleshly impotence on the other. You know, I'm weak, but I need God's power to do what he's called me to do. But I can't use my weakness as an excuse and say, I can't, I can't obey God. I can't carry out his assignment. It's too hard for me. I think about the disciples when they were they were out and Jesus was preaching and there's thousands of people gathered around and 
Jesus said, I'm worried about all these people. What are we going to do, John, James? And, uh, and they said, eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough food to give these people even a bite. And Jesus said, I want you to feed them. He also told them, I want you to cast out demons. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to lay down your life. There's a lot of things he asks that are beyond us, that are beyond our strength. Anyways, so I denounce fleshly reliance and fleshly impotence, and I lay hold of the power of God. Say, God, I need your power. And then the fourth thing that I focus on is like that, uh, that bowl sitting up on top, and it's adoration, that God is majestic. He is worthy of it all. He is worthy of everything we could give to him. He's, he's filled with majesty. He's perfect in holiness. He's good He's powerful, he's perfect, and I respond by giving him my adoration, by delighting in who he is, by abiding in his presence, by sacrificing all for his purpose. This is the bowl of incense rising up to the Lord. The offering of my life is expressed in intercession, in worship, in sacrifice, and in the obedience of faith. In the Old Testament, when, it, when they gave the Shema, there was all these commandments in chapters 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, 7, and 8, and it's all filled with commands to obey God, and that it's the obedience that was the, the demonstration of their love. And in a lot of ways, it would be easy to write that off and say, well, that was the Old Testament God. I just want to tell you some of the things that Jesus said in the upper room discourse. This is like right before he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane and he, he was betrayed. In John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. In John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 14, 24, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. John 15, 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. I want to live a life without regrets. When I first, um, when I first got saved, I was at uh, Pastor Breen's house. He was this old guy. He looked like Vince Lombardi. He had a big round face. And when he preached, he had a gap between his teeth and the spit would be flying out as he exhorted us to, to, to love God with all of our hearts. And I brought my, uh, my fellow submarine guys. We, 
we all lined the front rows, all of, all of us young guys. We were almost in, in the range where we were getting hit by the... Anyways. Um, <laughs> um, and I was at Pastor Breen's house, and this man came in, and he was an older man, which um, by, by my standards right now, he'd probably be a little bit younger. But he was, he was probably in his 50s, maybe early 60s, and he came in with tears streaming down his face, and he said, Pastor, I've wasted my life. God called me to preach, and I haven't done it. And he spent 20, 30, 40 years not doing what, what God had wanted him to do. And God wants us to love him. I was talking with uh, my, my prayer partner from college a couple days ago on Friday. And life hasn't gone so well for him. He had uh, gotten in a car accident that wasn't his fault. A drunk driver crossed the lane and hit him head on. And he got rocketed out of the back of his SUV. It was flipping over and he got thrown about 120 feet onto a soccer field. And his spine came out of his back and his head got swelled up like a melon. And he's been paralyzed for 20 something years. And he doesn't have control of his bowel or of his bladder. And uh, he loves God, but life hasn't gone well, and, uh, and um, he had desired that his sons come to know him, come to know God, and, and they've wandered away from God. The, the, the injuries impacted his whole family, it's impacted his relationships. And um, in talking with him Friday, uh, I didn't know, you know, Sometimes I don't know what to pray or what to say to him, but I just exhorted him to love God with all his heart. That we live, we live in a world where we can love God by faith, and we only have this little sliver of time to do it. Because when we're in heaven, we're going we're gonna to see him face to face. We're going to love him by sight. But while we're here, we can love him by faith. And God wants us to offer up that sacrifice of praise. And, uh, and I told my friend that, um, that he's got a rare opportunity to offer God love and worship even though things haven't gone right, even, things, even though things haven't gone according to plan. And no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, we can offer up to God the sacrifice of our love and it's precious to him and it's the best that we can give him. And um, I know like when some people hear a, a sermon about loving God and, and giving, giving it all to him, giving him the worth that, that, uh, that he deserves, a lot of people hear one thing, oh, I'm failing. Oh, I'm falling short. God doesn't want you to hear that. He wants you to know that you can love him right from where you're at 
in the circumstance that you're at. And you can give him the things that are still a struggle and the things that are still a hindrance and the circumstances that still um, feel like they're obstacles. There is no obstacle to loving God. We can love him right where we're at. And sometimes loving him in circumstances that are less than ideal, loving him when we've been wounded deeply, loving him when we feel so weak means more to him than loving him from a place of strength or from a place of victory. Got one more thing, then I'll close. Um, several years ago, I had a, a, a picture from, from the Lord. And in that picture, I saw people, and it represented the, the body of Christ. And people had standards. They had these poles with flags on top of them. And a lot of those people had flags that said stuff like shame, failure, disqualification, woundedness, abandoned, unloved. But I saw as they, as they walked towards God, those standards were coming down and new standards were coming up that said beloved, that said holy in the Lord, that said honorable, that said qualified by the Spirit of God. And it's not about our strength. It's about God's strength in us, him working through us. And um, <clears throat> we love God best, not by a more finely parsed theology, a greater strength of will, or a more fiery display of passion but with a deeper level of surrender to the God who loves us perfectly. And that's all I have to say about that. So Ron and Nancy, if you'll come up. I love you guys. I really do. This is an awesome church with awesome people. I just want to exhort you to love God, to give it all, to leave it all out on the field, to love him with all your heart.